Well, welcome to episode 33 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimminton, and uh, as always, we have with us the the prof, Peter Van Onselen. G'day, Peter. G'day, Hugh. How are you? Look, I'm I'm all right. I've, I've been busy. I'm a bit short on sleep. I was up for the last five nights uh, mm. just preparing a grant application for the little <laughs> sports club that I've got. Don't, don't bother. Just have a chat to your local marginal Liberal MP. They'll get it sorted for you. Will they? Yeah, apparently. Um, is this a scandal? And don't let merit be an issue either, Hugh. I mean, you could run everything from a wealthy rowing club to a polo club uh, in a Liberal seat. As long as you get the Liberal member on side, they can have a lazy chat on the side to the PMO, to the Federal Director of the Party. They can chat to the Sports Minister and just get the whole thing sorted for you. you know, those applications can be quite painful. Far too cynical. I've heard the Prime Minister on the subject. No rules were broken and it's all about letting the girls get changed without having to go around the back of the sheds. Just not the girls that want to get changed, not around the back of the shed, in worthy applicants that were shafted because of uh, their decision to only do this, by and large, in marginal seats to their political favour. I mean, the Prime Minister's worried. uh, He tries to make this a gender thing. He's worried about women needing change rooms. I'd love to know what percentage fall into that category, by the way, because I haven't seen an actual example of that. But even if they all do, uh, what about the worthy applications? for something similar, which uh, got tossed in the bin because of political considerations. One does wonder about the Mossman Rowing Club, which sits there on the spit at, uh, at the sort of entrance to, to Middle Harbour in one of the wealthiest places, not in Sydney, one of the wealthiest places in the world, which got half a million dollars. Um, I might, might, have, might have missed me when I go across the spit bridge from time to time. I haven't seen girls getting changed out in the open behind the sheds at the Mossman Rowing Club with an entrance fee of $1,000 plus, uh, you know, membership fee. Oh, but that, surely, surely that's a, a worthy grant, isn't it? I mean, half a million bucks uh, to the Mossman Rowing Club? I, I can't think of too many community organisations that would be doing it tougher. One of the interesting things about this, because we, we can sort of mock all day long on this, and in fact, one of the things about this entire rort is that we can mock all day long on this. There is, it's such a free and open field for uh, anyone who's cynical about the political process to just have at this, which is why I guess it's just hanging around like a bad, a bad smell, is that the Mossman Rowing Club is in the seat of Warringah, which, of course, is Tony Abbott's seat. And this half a million dollars came just weeks before uh, the federal election. Mm-hmm. And Tony Abbott, by that stage, it was well understood by the uh, the sharp minds within the Liberal Party, was in a world of trouble. Although he'd held that seat, it had always seemed among one of the safest Liberal seats in the country. Um, and, of course, events were to prove that he was tossed out um, by Zali Stegall, the, the independent. Um, one wonders... If the Liberal Party hadn't come to the shocked uh, realisation that they were in danger of losing that blue ribbon seat, would the Mossman Rowers Rowing Club have got half a million? In other words, would would, would deeply loyal coalition voters have got the coin had they not signalled that they were thinking about shifting their votes elsewhere? I suspect not, Uh, and, and that's the whole reason why the Auditor-General is so critical of the way that this sports grants process played out because those sort of political decision-making criteria or the way that they shift the criteria uh, actually is so unreasonable in a policy sense and so random uh, for, for the constituents who actually just may or may not need 
extra facilities. Can I just say this though, Hugh? Like we have been mocking it, and we've started this podcast, you know, with a bit of a a level of irony about all of this. But let's just go through a few things if we can, all right? Because I've had some dealing back and forth with the powers that be in government about this, and, and I think our listeners deserve to hear just how pathetic this is. So the Prime Minister, in a series of media interviews, has been running around saying no rules were broken with this process. But the Auditor-General, in the scathing report about this, said at item number 11 in his findings that the guidelines were breached. So just put those two things next to each other. The PM says no rules were broken. The Auditor-General says guidelines were breached. When I tweeted that the PM therefore is wrong because guidelines were breached, the powers that be, let's put it that way, get in touch with me and actually, and this is not a satire, this is not the hollow men or utopia or any of those sort of things, they get in touch with me and let me know that I'm wrong because actually within the rules you're allowed to breach guidelines and still be considered within the rules. That is how pathetic this state of affairs is. There were guidelines that were to be followed, but apparently no rules were broken, the PM says. Why is that? I'm informed because you're allowed to breach guidelines, which is what the Auditor General is so critical of. It's a farce, Hugh. It's an absolute farce. And an even bigger farce is when they all run around and they've been doing this as well, saying, oh, eligibility, all these grants were eligible, so nothing to see here. Well, you know, every halfwit in the parliament is eligible, in the lower house at least, to become prime minister. It doesn't mean you make them the prime minister. Do we want George Christensen as the prime minister? I could go on. I mean, this idea that eligibility alone means that no rorting or pork barrelling happened here, it is not actually something that disproves the criticism or how people feel about this. And it just annoys the hell out of me that politician after politician stands in front of a microphone and runs the line that there's nothing to see here when there clearly is, and they should not be allowed to get away with it. It's that simple. They're eligible because they applied within the guidelines that, 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 that they meet within the deadline, uh, yep. sports clubs apply, and that therefore they are eligible for consideration. They then get assessed by Sports Australia, uh, who come up with a, a list that they think are the most worthy um, candidate clubs. The, sa- the, the same way that I'm eligible to be prime as pr- president of the United States because I've got US citizenship. So what? <laughs> yeah. So, but but I mean, in a sense. What what follows here is not that they're eligible, but the process by which exactly. it was decided who was going to get the money. So where is Bridget McKenzie, now the Agriculture Minister? She's part of the Coalition Leadership Group, of course. She's the Deputy Leader of the mm-hmm. of the National Party. She was at, at the time the Sports Minister. What was she actually doing? Well, it's, that, this is where this gets more politically complicated and there's a little bit more of an explainer as to why she hasn't been immediately politically knocked on the head and removed from the front bench. There's all sorts of elements to it, okay? The, the first and simplest is that as Deputy Nationals Leader, she's instantly eligible to a Cabinet post. That's how she got into Cabinet in the first place. When she became Deputy Nationals Leader, she wasn't a Cabinet Minister before that. So it's complicated for a Prime Minister to sack her even if he wanted to. He would have to talk to the Nationals Technically, the Deputy Prime Minister and Nationals Leader might be able to push back on that. It's a difficult thing for a Deputy 
leader of the Nationals to just be easily sacked for wrongdoing by a Liberal Party Prime Minister. So there is that element to it. Well, Malcolm Turnbull found what the cost was when he decided to reach in and give uh, Barnaby Joyce a belting. And even then, he had to wait for the Nationals, in a sense, to do it themselves, even though he was becoming quite open in his public attacks on Barnaby at the time. And as you say, the political fallout followed. But here's the bigger issue, Hugh. The bigger reason why Bridget McKenzie, and look, you know, who knows, at some point when people listen to this, maybe she will be gone because there are other elements that are developing uh, you know, on a daily basis, which might give them the trigger. However... The reason for so long she's been protected is because, yes, she's the sports minister. Yes, she ultimately was the sports minister. Yes, she therefore signed off, if you like, on these grants being approved, the ones that the Auditor General was so scathing of that were nothing more than pork barrelling. However, she didn't do it alone. In fact, she really was just the figurehead as the sports minister that had to formally sign off, send it to Cabinet, get ticked and flicked and off it goes. The process, as I understand it, and I've been doing a lot of digging around on this to try to find out what happened. This happened and was divvied up inside the Prime Minister's office. His senior advisor for infrastructure and sport, who, by the way, was a former National Party advisor, which is why the links are so close. This particular gentleman, with others, as I understand it, inside the PMO, sat down with the carve-up in conjunction with party strategists ahead of a campaign, which was going to be a difficult one, made political decisions around which seats mattered and where they should shove money. Yes, they, of course, also allocated it in other ways because they didn't want it to be too brazen, but it was in the end brazen enough that the Auditor General saw the inconsistencies and the inappropriateness. Having been alerted to it by the Labor Party. Absolutely. And then they passed it on, essentially, to Bridget McKenzie as a junior minister at the time to say, here you go, this is what needs to happen, get it done. Now, this process tells us a lot about how high up this goes and it actually reminds me, and we'll see if it plays out the same way because I don't think it will play out the same way because of how politics has changed since then, but it reminds me of what happened during a whole series of early electoral entitlements abuses In the Howard era, shortly after he became Prime Minister, he lost a brace of ministers and what ended up happening is it turned out that there were links into what the PMO did and didn't know at the time. And John Howard lost his then Chief of Staff over this. It was Graham Morris. That was before Arthur Sinodinus took over and became a long-term Chief of Staff. And he lost it. They lost him because he knew some elements of what was going on. And to cauterise the wound inside the PMO, Graham Morris fell on his sword. He talked to me about that for the biography that I did on John Howard. This is reminiscent of that. So we'll see if heads roll inside the PMO. But one of the reasons that they're not just instantly cutting off Bridget McKenzie's political head on this is because she would become a scapegoat and then it could actually start to follow further and further after that were they to do that because this goes right inside the PMO. Another difficulty is that... It would. There's a gender issue here. There's a dire shortage of women in senior positions in the cabinet ranks. Uh, so something blows up with them. The first thing you do is you, figuratively speaking, take the uh, the woman closest to the big stink uh, out the back and uh, push her under a bus. That that would be how it would be perceived in some quarters. And they've got a vulnerability on that point, presumably, which would play into their thinking. Mm, exactly right. Exactly right. And so you said that there are other elements emerging uh, with relationship in relation to uh, Bridget McKenzie. Um, 
obviously one of them is this revelation that she gave money to a shooting club without disclosing that she was a member of that club. Um, is this what you're talking about? Is, is it getting exactly. as you get more and more into the weeds and the detail? Does it get look more and more kind of dirty and self-serving? Well, the the reason that she would ultimately go would be to be a scapegoat to try to ensure that they could, uh, you know, cauterize the wound. Whether they can do that without it seeping into the PMO is a whole other matter. But were they to try to do that, they need some sort of trigger and perhaps that undisclosed membership of that shooting club that was revealed by the Fairfax papers or the Channel 9 papers uh, is the is the way that that is achieved. If not, there would need to be another trigger. But they would need to do- line their ducks up behind the scenes to just try and make sure that if they politically execute Bridget McKenzie that there's not going to be a whole series of leaks and blowback that will ultimately reveal that it can't end with the sports minister because Hewitt shouldn't end with the sports minister. She was the front-facing politician who took this to Cabinet. Very true. but. The Prime Minister's office, in conjunction with the Federal Secretariat of the Liberal Party, made these calls and the Sports Minister, simply as the responsible minister, then ticked and flicked it. And that's the reason that this goes a hell of a lot deeper than just Bridget McKenzie making some dumb decisions politically that the Auditor-General called out. I mean, she's not senior enough, quite frankly, even though she's Deputy Nationals Leader, to make these decisions. You, you know, it, intuitively, apart from what I've actually not, been able not to find then. out. Oh, exactly. I mean, she, you know, then she was, she. I think she'd become deputy, but she was essentially a very green politician. She still is in many ways, but she's not. These are strategic decisions that get made by leadership officers as well as campaign leaders because they're so highly targeted into which seats matter and so on. And that is exactly why she wasn't just randomly doing this thinking, oh, this would be a good idea. I'll lend my two cents worth to the campaign by favouring a few marginal seats. It goes a hell of a lot deeper than that. And people would know that intuitively, but I know that based on the sources I've spoken to who have told me about that. Uh, Whether we can find a paper trail ultimately to prove it, that will be interesting. We will see. I thought Liz Ellis, one of the great Australian uh, sports women, uh, netball champion on the project, uh, was dead right on this because she's closely mm. connected into that sense of regional Australia sports clubs run by volunteers, um, you know, working hard. They're short on cash. They've got no fundraising. They can't charge big uh, membership fees, unlike the Mossman Rowing Club. Um, and these sorts of sums of money really matter. And they think they're being part of a fair process. At least they'll have a fair shake at it. And then discovering that it really all depends on whether votes can be shifted or protected. Um, I think her passionate engagement with that issue on mm. the project uh, really oh, brings home. Oh, she was great, home. wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I agree. And it brings home to how this hurts personally uh, people who think and want to believe that they live in a country which at some fundamental level has fairness and and a fair go as being a core value and realising how deeply it is a corrupted political process is mm. the kind of reason why I think perhaps this one is sticking around longer than some of these other scandals. I mean, let's not forget that they gave... Over four hundred million dollars. Turnbull gave over four hundred million dollars uh, to the Great Barrier Reef Foundation that hadn't even asked for it. I know. So, I know. well, yeah, and we should say that the, the, this, you know, this situation is not a Robinson Crusoe affair. It both sides of politics have done it. I mean, the original terminology of the sports rorts 
as a concept was, of course, Ros Kelly during the Keating years. Um, but, you know, what annoys me... But and Ros we'll Kelly ha- was forced to quit. Exactly. And what anno- annoys me now is it looks like they just dig in these days and hope that we all move on. I mean, I, let me put it this way, Hugh. Tell me if you're getting the nod or not. Are we able to beep expletives in this podcast? I mean, is that the yeah, way this works? Yeah, we can beep an okay. expletive because... Well, let me just let it, Have at it. Okay, this situation is f- It is absolutely f- And I've never said that before in something like this, a podcast on air with a beep, nothing. But it is so f- that I'm just beside myself sick of it. And if they don't act on it, and if we as journalists and if the public as participants in our democratic process don't stick on this, then we're all as bad as they are by implication. She has to go and we need further investigation into who inside the PM's office, who else through the political process was part of this dodgy rort, which was pork barrelling ahead of an election, and handballing it to the Attorney General, as much as I respect Christian Porter, he's a politician. His electorate received a million bucks in a grant. The idea that that is some sort of independent investigation, which the Prime Minister says is going to happen, that's a joke. That's a complete and utter it's joke. It's astonishing that they would think that the public would buy that, that you're going to take the Attorney General part of the Ugh. Cabinet process and say, oh, no, no, we've got it under investigation, we've got this bloke over here who's going to investigate. He was in the Cabinet that ticked off on it, for God's sakes. I mean, it's just th- this situation, <laughs> I mean, we've had, you know, we have various iterations of this in politics. The part that gets me so riled now is the reaction to it. We all expect this stuff. It happens in politics. There's been worse examples of pork barreling and rorting and corruption, absolutely. But it's the way they dig in now and and the brazen way ministers look down the barrel of a camera and say, oh, the rules weren't broken. Oh, they were within the guidelines. Well, actually, they weren't. Oh, you know, they were eligible. Oh, Labor electorates received some as well. Oh, women no longer have to get changed behind the facility. They actually get change rooms. Get lost. This is not the point. This is not the point at all. Read the bloody Auditor-General's report. It it is disgusting. And as you say, Liz Ellis nailed it on the project when she made the point about how do all these clubs feel wasting time doing applications in the false belief that this is a meritorious process. If, If there aren't heads to roll here, then what is the bloody point in even trying to hold politicians to account. Interesting enough, Bridget McKenzie was saying, no, look, it was reverse pork barrelling. And the and the signal issue that ticked us all off was the fact that they were giving money to a sports club within an electorate that wasn't held by the coalition. It was a seat of mayor, which was held by Rebecca Sharkey, who'd come up through the uh, Nick Xenophon movement. Um, and so therefore, look, you know, we're not giving it to one of our seats. We're giving it to one of someone else's seats. But the whole point to it was, is that they were determined to try to get Georgina Downer, the Liberal candidate, to take that seat. So she was the one who got to stand there even as a candidate <laughs> with the massive big novelty check, you know, as big as the room with the money that they were delivering. And that was the sign that this... Doesn't that tell you everything? <laughs> yeah, that it's got nothing to do, you know, even if you're giving it to another seat, it's because it's a seat you're targeting to win. Uh, again, pure political process. Uh, look, thank you for that burst of um, of beepable <laughs> language. It's always... I-, I hope they get the expletive beeps in or else, uh, you know, Houston, we have a problem. Well, we'll have a chat. I quite liked it as it was, actually, but uh, (laughs) others bigger than me will decide. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, PVO, and uh, be back in a moment. 
straight from the jungles of South Africa. I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, as Tanya Hennessy delves deep into the lives of her castmates. Nights are long in the jungle, and what better way to pass the time than to reveal your innermost feelings. Tanya's sexy jungle podcast. Find it on the 10 Speaks page on 10 Play or wherever you listen to your body. Welcome back. This is uh, episode 33 of uh, The Professor and the Hack, and uh, our uh, technician teams here have been flat out with the beep button, as PDO <laughs> gave, um, I think we'd say, a, a reasonable spray as to why the sports rorts mess uh, is worse than most of these little messes, I would guess. Can I ask uh, you a question, Hugh? I mean, yeah. you've covered politics and current affairs for a lot longer than I have. How do you keep your sanity? <laughs> Are you asking for a friend, PVO? <laughs> it's, well, it's just, you know, uh, does anything change? I mean, it, it feels worse. I used to read it as a political scientist slash historian, I suppose, but now I'm, you know, in the thick of it uh, as, a, as a journalist and commentator. But it feels worse, but maybe it only feels worse because now I'm in the midst of the frustration of it, whereas before I would just read about it from afar. Is, is it worse? And if it's not worse, well, firstly, if it's worse, that must be even more depressing. But if it's not worse and it's just enduring, I mean, how do you, how do you not just become so cynical that it becomes impossible to, uh, you know, to, to, to go home and relax? Well, I hope you do get a chance to go home and relax. The reality <laughs> of it is, as you know, as I know, as everyone listening to this knows, is that there have been all kinds of um, errors and uh and, and sheer low rentness in political activities, mm. uh, and we could sit here and recount hundreds that we're personally uh, familiar with from from the time of being a journo. What strikes me about this one is two things. One is that it's not the worst scandal I've ever seen in politics by a long shot, but mm -hmm. it is a scandal. And secondly, how uh, blandly. Uh, concerns about it are battered away. There is no suggestion that this government is remotely interested in meeting Westminster notions of accountability um, when things are plainly taxpayers' interests, the broad Australian population's interests are being disdained in favour of, uh, of, a, of a narrow political interest. And it's almost as if no one's even pretending anymore. Yeah. And, and I think that is something where, where there used to be, uh, at the very least, a pretense mm. of trying to live up to certain standards. And on occasions, with great regret, uh, you know, a prime minister might have to just dispatch off, off the field, um, some, uh, someone who's done the wrong thing. And, of course, the famous examples were Hawke um, dispatching his great friend, Mick Young, for not declaring the Paddington bear that he had brought back on a trip from London, a teddy bear uh, that apparently had some customs duties. He hadn't declared on it. It was a matter of a few dollars, and he was kicked out of Cabinet. And... Um, and he wasn't a, 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 you know, like some sort of factional enemy that, that Hawke no, wanted to get, no. use an excuse to get rid of. He was a very great friend, but he saw a wider um, need to show and display uh, integrity in office. It, it, and, and so McGowan so, fell. 
it's so different now, isn't it? I mean, I mean, look at we've been talking about Bridget McKenzie and sports rorts, but I mean, look at Angus Taylor. I mean, we had news since we last spoke now that a freedom of information request came in uh, in relation to all of this saga about what happened with that forged document vis-a-vis Sydney City Council and Clovermore. And you know who signed off on the rejection of that FOI application? Surprise. One of one, one of Angus Taylor's senior advisors in his political office. I mean, is that theatre of the absurd or is that theatre of the absurd? And the other thing about that with the Angus Taylor business is that we are, and I say we, the the voters, the electors, the, the citizens of a nation are entitled to believe that those who hold high elected office are going to be model uh, actors in matters of law. In other words, um, if the police come and knock on the door of a minister, what we expect is that the minister will cooperate fully and frankly with that police investigation. We've got had an investigation at the state level, it's now been kicked up to the federal level over what where was this falsified document that was used by the minister to misrepresent the circumstances surrounding Sydney's Lord Mayor Clover Moore and her council and its spending on travel? Now, this is straightforward in the sense that if the minister's office who, who made these claims is being a model actor, as you would hope a minister of the Crown would be, they would cooperate with the police that is exactly what the public would expect you to do, and it would be a matter of no difficulty for a professional police force to follow a fairly short chain of mm. uh, communications, you would have thought, to find the people who falsified this document. Now, what is emerging from this is that there is absolutely no grounds for confidence that a cabinet minister is cooperating with the federal police. It's extraordinary. Or previously the it? New South Wales State Police. It's extraordinary, and we'll wait to see what happens. Uh, but as you say, it's the lack of confidence that people have now, uh, and certainly that as a journalist I have, in any of that happening that you describe, Hugh. And, and the belief they can get away with it, the, the yeah. confident belief they can get away with it. And that leads us ends to another... justify means. That's become what we're watching now in, in politics. You know, if the ends of their policy goal or personal ambition or hope to politically survive a circumstance, if that can be achieved, then the means of getting there, they just don't care. They'll they'll trample over any convention or historical structure or institutional responsibility that's been carved out if they can get away with it. Well, it's funny because that ends justify the means as a kind of a Machiavellian notion which dates back to sort of late late Renaissance Italy mm. Florentine politics all those kinds of things. So this is not a new these are not new concepts that have been around for hundreds of years, but one of the things that have lifted us out of that essentially criminal principalities operating in city states in Italy, you know, hundreds of years ago is that theoretically uh, democracies built up institutions to ensure yep. that there was transparency and integrity and built balances. into the system, checks and balances, and that the relationship between the governors and the governed is supposed to be in closer balance and uh, that there's an accountability process that's built into that. So the fact that people, the end justifies the means, go back to Homer, go back as long as you like, and plainly people acted in all kinds of appalling ways, but our institutions and the people who lead them 
we are led to believe are supposed to be better than that, and that's but, what we're not seeing evidence of. Yeah, look, we've we've become a version of an elected dictatorship now. Yes, we get a say when we vote once every three years, unless, of course, they don't have the courage to do something in the parliament and then they'll give us a plebiscite like they did on same-sex marriage, uh, only when they're too gutless to actually fulfil their institutional responsibility. But beyond that, uh, elected dictatorship is really what election, uh, modern representative democracy in some respects have become. And then when it comes to that elected dictatorship where once every three years we get to have a say, sports rorts, you name it, we see all the institutional levers that they pull against convention and against good practice before it to try to influence that outcome. Against which background we watch, look to the United States and we see the impeachment trial process uh, is now... Well, that makes me feel better about Australia. Yeah. Whether I'm looking at Brexit or whether I'm looking at Donald Trump, I I, I can look back at our system as as moribund as I think it is and go, oh, well, you know, it's a lesser of evil. But but it's of a piece, isn't it? Because what we've got there, uh, Tony Abbott gave a speech in the United States in which he, he made a case for Donald Trump basically saying that he's a man whose personal integrity he may have some problems with, but his political integrity, says Abbott, um, is sound because he does the things that he's promised uh, to <laughs> the do. The irony of that. So, uh, well, yeah. So so then you, you look at this impeachment process because it comes down to institutional mechanisms. Do they still actually have any leverage? Do they mean anything? Because the Democrats, and there is a political process here, the Democrats who control the House, have come up with these articles of impeachment through a process of inquiry in which they believe that they have grounds that uh, to accuse the president of having breached the law on two important grounds and therefore should be impeached. It then goes up to the Senate, which requires a two-thirds majority uh, to f- to essentially get to the threshold where they can sack the president. There's no chance of that because it's um, it, it's controlled by the Republicans anyway. Mm. Uh, the, the management of that process is in the hands of the Senate uh, and, and they have significant um, influence over, over whether witnesses get called and which, which witnesses get called and, and whether they have a vote against it uh, before they even hear from anybody. So that process of institutional checks and balances Let's cut to the end of it. Trump is not going to get found guilty um, in an impeachment trial in the Senate. He will go to the next election uh, at the end of this year and the people of the United States will decide. And on the current, my current reckoning, he'll get back in again. And mm. I wonder whether, and that can be good for democracy, you know, in a certain way. I believe in voters ultimately getting to choose that. But the institutional checks and balances, whether we're talking about something like the disdain that's been shown by this prime minister to an Auditor General's report or the process that we're seeing in the impeachment process in the United States, um, none of it seems to count for anything anymore. And that's one of the things that does seem to have changed. I mean, we've had moments in time where past leaders in all these different countries have tried to do versions of what you see with Trump or what you see in a, in a much lower level sense playing out here around sports rorts. But the difference is, is that they only get away with it for so long, whereas you get – and eventually the institutions and the system catches up with them. It's one of the reasons why I've always been such a fanboy of democracy and including, including in that the American system at different points in time, not just the Westminster one. But – that does feel like it's changing and uh, it's an ongoing debate. It's a to-be-continued movie at this point, but we'll see, won't we? Uh, Because it does seem like what you're saying 
is how it is going to play out. Uh, that the getting away with it institutionally because of a lack of checks and balances in the process, despite them theoretically being there, is the most likely outcome. And as you say, politically, then that result and that obfuscation being given the green light or being ticked off on by the voters come polling day, uh, not necessarily directly ticked off on, but indirectly by re-electing a president despite uh, all of all of what has gone on before. So democracy is... You heard it here first. Um, <laughs> the beep button getting a workout. PVO, great to chat as always. Good chatting, Hugh. Well, depressing, but good. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.